welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here on the day after Valentine's Day 2019. You know, I was thinking back when I was a kid and we made those little cardboard boxes. And back then it was cigar boxes because people smoked. Now they use tissue boxes because people have allergies. <laughs> My little girl, Six, has one in her little uh, first grade classroom. We decorated that with construction paper and loaded her up with some pretty basic Valentine's Day cards to pass out to her friends. And uh, I was thinking back to the candy we used to get back in those days. Remember like those little tiny sugar concentrated like pounded into a concrete block sugar hearts that had those little messages like will you be mine or be my valentine or not this year creep. All those things they used to have printed on those things. Uh, You know if you got one of those this year or you bought those beware that company went out of business a while back. So that was probably sitting in a warehouse or an old semi-truck somewhere for a couple of decades. And uh, they're just busting them back out now to sell them. So check the expiry on that, would you? I don't know if those things actually expire. They uh, seem to live on forever. We used to actually make little slingshots with with a big rubber band. Remember those fat rubber bands you would get around the Sunday paper? Put it between our thumb and our pointer finger and, and like pull back and launch those little hearts from our little hand slingshots across the room back in fourth grade. And that's... One of the ways I got sent to the principal's office that year, one of maybe a dozen. Hey, we got a fun podcast today. My guest is K. Dodd. K. Dodd started comedy roughly the same time I did, almost to the month, back in 1991. She started, I started, I didn't know her, she didn't know me. She kind of hit the reset button several years into her deal, you know, quite a while into her deal. And uh, decided to clean up her act and basically tossed out her old act and started fresh and new. We talk about how she did that. We talk about also how she helped out in the office of Comedy House Theater and gave us a couple of unique insights as to something that that particular chain did to uh, boost their attendance and how they did it wisely by selecting only good audience members. Huh, audience, you didn't know you were being judged. You're sitting out there judging the comedians. Guess what? This place was judging you. Interesting. We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about uh, her setting up fundraisers. She likes to do those once a quarter. And she has one very specific piece of advice that I think is key to making that work. So stay tuned for all that. That'll happen here in about 10 seconds. I want to give a quick shout out to John McCormick, who is our sponsor for this episode this week. John is taking the online class already sending in homework, and I'm already laughing at some of the stuff he's writing. So good stuff there, John. Thanks for taking care of this podcast. Let's get into it with Kay Dodd. What's going on there, Kay Dodd? Hey, Rick Roberts. So good to be with you today. I'm glad I've got you on the phone today. You know, I guess I've known you for... 10, 11 years, maybe? Yeah, I went to the first CCA conference um, in 2008. Were you at that one, or did you come after that? No, 2013 was the first one, um, but I was quite the little wallflower back then. <laughs> Those days are up, but I was back then. Um, I didn't really say much of anything to anybody. I was just taking it all in. 
That's great. And how did you find out about the Christian Comedy Association to start with? Well, it's interesting because that year that I came, uh, CCA was 12 years old, I think. Did you guys have the first one, I think, in like 2001? Um, I knew nothing about Christian comedy. I knew nothing about any names that are associated with Christian comedy. I was a club comic and had been at that point for about 10 years. I had quit the road um, in 97 and had a baby in 98. And so, I, but I was still working all around Atlanta um, through the punchline, private corporate stuff and, and working as much as I could at the club in Atlanta. And somebody that I was in Bible study with, um, sent me an email from Shonda Pierce. Uh, it was an email blast that she had sent out to her fan base that just said, Hey, if you know of any comedians uh, that are Christians, we're having this saying at my funny farm in Nashville uh, coming up in June. And I looked at that and I was like, um, I still smoke and I still cuss. I don't think I can go to that. And, um, so I really just thought, no, I don't qualify because I was desperately, um, you know, doing Bible study and all that kind of stuff. But I was I had not cleaned up my act. That's for sure. That's where I'm getting at with that. I was not a clean act. I guess I was rated club clean. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I, I was like, no, I can't go to that. Well, like a month later, uh I will just say God got a hold of my heart and my mouth and I started cleaning up my act. And so I had to kind of quit comedy. I mean, I, I spiritualized it and call it a sabbatical, but really it was, I ain't got no act tour. And um, because I had nothing left that, that I could really do. Everybody was telling me then, Oh, you should make that jump from, you know, club comedy to Christian comedy. And I was like, I can't jump. There's nothing to jump from or jump onto. And, and uh, and so that's just kind of how I found out about CCA. It was born the same year kind of I was, I guess. And um, and so I, I really just let it all go. I quit working the punchline. I quit working stages all together for like the next um, six, seven years. And um, and we'll get into that more. But you ask about CCA. So that's how I found out about it. Didn't didn't join it until 2000. 11, I think, and then came to my first conference in 2013. Gotcha. And so you'd been doing comedy for quite a while before the CCA stuff even happened. How did you get into it originally, like back in the very first days? Like, do you remember your first open mic, your first situation? Yes. (laughs) Well, I was actually, um, my, you know, canned answers couldn't keep a day job, so I had to do something. But I had been a, um, secretary and office manager for um, almost 20 years at that point and uh, no probably about 15 years at that point and um, I was working in this office where some things were going on that weren't exactly um, the best uh, business practices and I was constantly cracking jokes about stuff like that and one of the girls that that worked in the office um, with me um, there's a newspaper in Atlanta called Creative Loafing. I don't even know if it's still around, but it's a very artsy, tells you all the happenings, you know, in arts and entertainment around Atlanta. And she had cut this ad out of the paper um, in Creative Loafing for the Jeff Justice Comedy Workshop. 
and she circled it and wrote on it, don't miss your calling. Here's your chance. And I just kind of tucked it away in my purse. She made a copy of it and, um, and wrote that on the copy. And so I just kind of tucked it away in my purse. And a couple of weeks later, I had a really rough day at work and, and I lived uh, 20 minutes away from the office, but it was so bad. I actually drove home and contemplated not going back to work that day. And I was getting ready to leave and saw that ad in my purse. And I was like, you know what? And I called him right then and he had one spot left. And I um, went and got a money order and uh, for the amount that he said the class was. And then on my way to work that Monday morning when I was going to mail that money order, the water pump blew up on my car. Mm. And I just, I got, I didn't even know what was wrong. I just knew it broke down in this nice subdivision and steam was coming out of it. And but I went on and I was like, I don't even know how much this car thing is going to cost, but I'm doing this. And I went to the mailbox and dropped that in the mail. And so my graduation was uh, summer of, uh, I think I was the second or third class that he did. And um, so I graduated in July of 91 and I was hooked when I heard Jeff Foxworthy say that when he got that first laugh, he knew that was going to be something he's going to have to do again and again. And, um, and that was the same for me. So, uh, that's how I got started. So that cut out a lot. I love that, you know, you guys teach comedy. A lot of people, you know, back then it was kind of new and people were, Oh, you can't, you know, you can't teach comedy. Well, you can't teach somebody to be funny, but you can certainly help them, uh, avoid a lot of pitfalls of open mic and mistakes. I, I feel like I shaved off about five years of mistakes by by going that route because 11 months later I quit my day job and I was a full-time working comic but you know that was in the early 90s so the comedy clubs were still in abundance at that time yeah it's interesting I I started in 91 too probably about the same same month I'd imagine June or May even yeah so I, I didn't realize we'd been both at this thing for for the same amount of time basically and I yeah I didn't we didn't have classes where I was at I would have loved to have taken some what what kind of you know lessons or how did how did Jeff go about teaching his class in general um basically uh he he taught us you know one of the first uh things he did was ask how many of you are funny? You know, how many of you have been told over and over again that you're funny? Of course, everybody raised their hand and he said, oh, well, good, because I this is not a class about teaching you how to be funny. But I can teach you how to take your sense of humor and your life and true statements about your life and make them stage worthy. And that was the thing that I had been looking for because I had been a comedy groupie. I had sat on the front row for Jerry Seinfeld multiple times when he was still working the clubs. I'd seen Bill Ingvall. I'd been at Tim Allen's shows, uh, Richard Jenny. I mean, some of the old school guys, oh, yeah. that, some that are uh, passed on. But I was a, a regular um, comedy groupie at the Atlanta Punchline. And people would always say, you need to get up there. You need to get up there. And But I knew I couldn't translate the funny thing that I said at the office up on the stage the way that they were doing I couldn't understand how they were doing that but anyway so he kind of just 
laid that out and explained that, you know, you can't get up there and go, well, then she said, and then I said, and then she said, and then I said, and ha ha ha, isn't that funny? Um, you have to turn it into more of a converse, a one-sided conversation. And so we use some of the old school tools, you know, Jean Perret has uh, great um, books on comedy writing. He recommended a lot of those kinds of resources, Judy Carter, her original book. Um, I think she's put all that in the comedy Bible now, but it was called Stand Up Comedy, the book. And we, um, you know, we studied through that, or he just recommended that we buy those resources. And, and so I did. So a lot of it was telling the truth with a twist. And I still use that to this day, you know, is, is making a true statement about my life and then looking for the, the hard left turn. I, I'm a very, I, I love Mr. X. And, um, and so that's my writing style is take you down, you know, let's get in the car. We're going to get a quick trip to the store. And just when you see the store up on the right, I'm going to take a hard left turn. You don't know where I'm going with it. And um, so. Yeah, that's my favorite kind of comedy. It's, it's amazing to me how many times comics will say, I hate Walmart. And then they'll tell you five reasons why they hate Walmart. And you're like, you didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> you tell me you hate Walmart. And then you tell <laughs> me why, why you hate Walmart. <laughs> This is not brought to you by Walmart today, just so we know. Yeah, um, <laughs> Walmart crazy. is not today's sponsor. No, I'll take a sponsor if anybody out there wants to jump on. But, yeah, it's funny. There's just <laughs> so many different styles of comedy. And there are people that can go through their show with, with not hard lefts, but just kind of gradual lefts. And, and it still works for them. But I, I always really like the hard lefts, the very strong misdirection to where, you know, I always say when you misdirect somebody really good, it's, you tripped them up before they could finish the thought in their own mind and go a certain yes. way with it. And that's, you know, to, and everybody likes different styles, but that's definitely my favorite to, to go watch because, you know, stories are great. Love stories. Stories need misdirection in them too, I think. But yes, that's great. So you started in 91 in Atlanta. So, yes. you know, back then I'm going to throw out, I mean, was Henry Cho hitting the scene back then? Because he was big college entertainer yes. at the time. But I imagine he was hitting the punchline quite often, too. I, I don't know at what. Okay, so I started in 91. Atlanta had five comedy clubs at that time. And um, <clears throat> so the punchline had actually three locations, the Funny Bone, three punchlines, and uh, a comic cafe in Marietta. And so they all had open mics. But now when I got started, I think North Lake Punchline had just closed. And by August of that same year, uh, Underground Punchline was closing. And because, you know, the 80s had seen the boom of a comedy club on every corner. And now the market, you know, just wasn't sustaining it. Cable TV was coming along with Showtime specials and HBO specials and all those club comics of the 80s were starting to get on that. And then people started getting that mindset, oh, well, you know, I can watch it at home and not have to get out. Well, there's nothing like live comedy. I don't care which day or who you are. Right. But um, so when I got started, I at least had that circle of a comic cafe, punchline and funny bone and you know the punchline as always was and always has been and always will be my home club it's where I, I first set foot on stage and uh, so I would just go every week Tuesday was open mic night 
I'd go every week and sign up. Even if I was on the week before and knew I probably didn't have a chance of getting on, I would still go and sign up and I would then stay for the show and I would go in and I was a paying customer in the back at the bar and I got to know the staff and, you know, and I didn't even really know what I was doing. That's just what I did. And, but then it just got to the point where, I may have done open mic the week before, but I'd go back the next week, sign up, and the manager would call me aside and say, hey, I need you to emcee the show tonight. You know, I'm short of comic. And uh, so I'm going to bump the opener up to feature, and you are going to just host this night. And so that's how I started getting my hosting skills uh, into play. And, and, um, uh, and, you know, the Funny Bone was the very first club that ever offered me a week of work. Um, uh, in Atlanta, I, I had actually been offered some work out of town, but because I had a day job, I couldn't take it. And I had one club owner, uh, that really kind of became my manager later on, Aubrey Pippen. Um, he owned kind of a chain of comedy clubs in the Southeast and, uh, Aubrey just flat told me, he said, I, I like you. I think you're great. He said, but I won't hire you till you get rid of your day job. He said, cause I know that pays your bills and uh, I can't have you pulling out of a week on need because they said, no, you can't have this week off or this day off or whatever. And so, so by, um, so that was July of 91 when I did the graduation and by August of 92, I had quit my day job. And so 13 months later, uh, I always say I sold everything I owned, uh, gave up a two bedroom house, sold everything I owned, put that $200 in the bank and hit the road <laughs> because I, w- I, w- I moved into a woman's house and was literally just renting a room. I went from a two bedroom house to a bedroom out of somebody's house. And, um, that, you know, th- but things got so busy and, um, in just a few months when people started finding out, I got a lot of referral work. I had headliners that would request me because I would do, you know, my time and nobody else's and all of those little key phrases that, that help us. And, um, some night, some months I would literally sleep in that, um, room one night. I had a 300, I called it my $300 hotel room because <laughs> yeah. I paid $300 a month. And if I only stayed there one night, that. Uh, so it was a great deal for her because she had a roommate that was never there. Yeah, that's, that's funny. We're very similar because I, when I started, I moved in a house with two other comics, and it was one fifty a month. And I took the attic room, which had no air conditioning, and my goal was to to work so much that I wouldn't be there. And if I was there, I'd be so miserable. I would hustle and get more work. You know what I mean? So I, I never installed an air conditioner, not even a window unit. And, you know, Ohio wasn't brutal in the summer, but certainly there in July and August, it was it was motivation to get out. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely and it's funny. I, I think I even had a you know how I am. I'm pretty analytical and data driven and all that kind of stuff. But I had a, a sheet where I would rate the different clubs that I was working based on whether they had a, a swimming pool at the condo or not. And in the summer I would just book the club that had a pool. And, uh, oh, wow. See, yeah. you're, you're so, um, you're such a go-getter. Yeah. I, um, I, and I was horrible at routing. I mean, I could literally be in Pensacola one week and Indiana the next, you know, and not pick up anything in between because I was, I just took whatever was, was there. I, I drove my little Toyota Corolla 
just about into the ground. Yeah. Now, on the being in Atlanta, did you do a lot of the, the comedy house theaters then? Aubrey booked those, didn't he? Yes, Aubrey owned uh, two of them. He actually owned the buildings and the club. Uh, the others that he had, uh, actually, he owned three of them at one time because he opened one in Columbia, South Carolina. So he had a Columbia, Augusta, and Savannah, and his corporate office was in Savannah. But then he, back then, he booked Ocala, which was inside a Holiday Inn, and then he started picking up all these other little onesie twosie, you know, one nighter kind of things. And uh, and I was doing so much work for him on stage and off because I was supplementing my comedy club, you know, back in the day. I don't know what they pay now, but back in the day, I was doing eight, nine shows for $250 a week. And, um, <clears throat> you know, why would you want um, corporate stability and insurance when you can have a holiday in and $250 um, every week um, was my motto. <laughs> and uh, so I started he started a program uh within his clubs within the ones that he owned anyway where he would book the opener two weeks back to back and then he would cover your dark night the the dark night monday he was closed back then clubs were mainly open tuesday through sunday right and uh so he would cover your hotel for the for the one night in between and uh and so he had four of those so he was working me three and four times a year at every club. So once they, you know, mapped out my year, that was, uh, gosh, that was almost 20 weeks of work. I can't do the math that quick, Rick, but that was half my year's work right there. And, uh, and then because I was working for him off stage because I knew how to do computer stuff and, and I helped automate some of his things, uh, in the club and, uh, would kind of just assist him some in the office. So I was making money day, daytime and nighttime uh, working with him. So I ended up moving to Savannah in 93, which was not the best move because that was a routing nightmare. <laughs> you can't get anywhere from Savannah except Columbia and Augusta and uh, Jacksonville. And, uh, but I lived there two years and worked for him uh, on stage and off. I actually helped run one of his comedy clubs as a day manager for about five months too. So I got to see that side of the business as well. well that's, that's really cool. You know, I think most comics don't understand how much goes on just to keep the, the doors open and the lights on in a comedy club. You know, there's a lot of clubs that aren't around. Yeah. Cause people couldn't figure out how to do it. So uh, just maybe can you give us one example from that side of things things that comics did that would drive a club crazy or things that clubs did that they uh, did right or did wrong to keep the club around? Well, as far as, uh, you know, being behind the scenes working for Aubrey, Aubrey had developed, um, he had hired a guy to develop a, a tracking database for um, uh, for his wait staff. They had a, a sheet that they filled out about every table. And, and so, you know, all clubs kind of back then were doing the comment cards, mm -hmm. filling out the comment cards. And uh, that was a foundational thing back then for clubs to get Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, especially Tuesday, Wednesday night patrons on a non-special engagement week. Um, that was critical to have those cards because now you can give away uh, five 
uh, parties of 10, um, you won a ticket, you won 10 tickets to this next Tuesday night or this next Wednesday night. Well, Aubrey had a system where when that party would come in on that Tuesday night or Wednesday night or Thursday night, and he had a girl that was full-time dedicated to doing that booking. So she would pick the comment cards, but what they didn't know is the waitress had filled out a thing, a report on that comment card to tell the club whether they were a good group or whether they were rowdy, whether they heckled, whether they uh, drank a lot or just, you know, just kind of covered the minimum. And so all of that went into the report. And um, so then when they would give away the tickets and that group would come in, then there was another report that was filled out on that group. And so a really good group could win a lot of tickets to come back again and again and again. And so one of the worst things that a comedian can do to a club is mess as a host and MC is mess up the announcements and not take the comment card. Um, I don't know if they still do that, but I'm sure they do some kind of way of contacting people is to not take that seriously. Um, that was one of the reasons I kept getting hired as a host because I was a really good host as the host and MC. You are an employee of the club. So you don't say they have a comment card. You say we have a comment card and you need to fill that out because you could win tickets and you just make it so exciting and you're a part of that business and you're a part of that game. And, um, you know, that that's what makes a good host and MC. And it would drive a club. It would cost MCs work in that club if they got up there and made fun of the card. They think they, you know, were being funny to make jokes about it. And if that messed up and uh, messed up the amount that they got back, that MC would not be back anytime soon to that club. Wow. Yeah, it's it's funny. I never thought about rating the customer on how they behaved and how they spent, but that makes total sense. You wouldn't want to keep giving away tickets to people who are problems, so you got to know who those people are. Well, that's, that was pretty advanced thinking. It really was. Aubrey was the man, I tell you. Um, I'm so grateful for that man. Um, for business, what I learned about the business of comedy, um, just business in general. And, you know, he was a smart, smart businessman. Still is. He's still, he's still going. That's great. And what about a, a business tip that has worked for you? I mean, everybody has different approaches on how they do comedy, but eventually you kind of find a couple things that are in your wheelhouse that seem to work with the least amount of friction and the biggest payoff. What what gets you fired up to, to get up every morning and, and keep pursuing this? It's the very thing that I didn't do for those first 10 years, and that was keep it clean. Hmm. Um, I got to work with Jeff Foxworthy. I met him in 1991, and I got to work with him uh, for about six shows in Savannah at Aubrey's Club in 93. And then... Um, he was very well known then. Uh, he wasn't the household name that he became, uh, but he was very well known. He already had platinum CDs. Um, he had books out. You know, I actually got to go with him to a book signing at the Savannah Mall. And uh, and and his his one piece of advice to me that I wish I had followed then. I didn't follow it till many years later. Was about keeping it clean because a clean comic can always get work um and and he said if you go into these little one-nighters in these small towns and they don't want clean comedy um 
you can always colorize it if you want to or need to or whatever to get their attention, but just keeping that foundational clean. And that is something that I just said this to somebody the other day. Uh, the stuff that that hangs low on the tree, the fruit that hangs low on the tree that's easy to pick. Uh, I'm not saying that my act is completely void of that because I'm sure I could look at some of the stuff and, and say, oh, gosh, that's so easy of humor. I should not say that anymore or whatever. But it is still squeaky, squeaky clean. Um, but I, what I really strive to do and want to do more of, Rick, is writing uh, my writing to be going, getting the ladder out of the barn, bringing it down to the orchard and putting it up against the tree and climbing to the top. I want to work harder to get to the higher level funny, you know, not, not for it to be, not for it to be easy. Um, there's certain topics that um, men and women both, you know, can use that everybody does it, but Third graders could do jokes on that topic and still get laughed. Um, let me ask you about what's going on these days. I know last time I talked to you, you were doing some fundraising events that you were kind of putting together and different kinds of shows where you're starting to produce a few shows. How's that going? Um, it's going great. Um, I just did my fourth one called Stand Up for Hope. And I haven't gotten the final numbers in yet. And I had wanted to do four just in one year last year. It started in January of last year. So my plan was to do one a quarter of Stand Up for Hope. And, um, you know, I got hit by a truck. <laughs> Have I mentioned that? Literally. So I didn't get, didn't get one in there in the fourth quarter of last year. Um, but so the three that I did last year and the one that we just did that I did with Ken uh, Kington two weeks ago, uh, has raised over $30,000. Whoa. I know. I'm so excited. Not for me, <laughs> for them. Um, and it's funny because the first two that I did was uh, one for our house and one for my father's house. I said, I need to come back and do one for K Dodd's house. Right. <laughs> so our house is a domestic violence uh, shelter in our county in Georgia. And uh, my father's house is a uh, sober living home, a Christian sober living home for women in the neighboring county. And, uh, and that's a, you know, uh, recovery, uh, sober living is topic near and dear to my heart. And so is domestic violence. And so, uh, so both of those things are part of my story. And um, so Stand Up for Hope was born in January of last year. And I kind of wanted it to be mostly geared toward women's causes, women's issues. I did do one last year that um, helped send some kids to camp for a uh, wind-shaped camp that was coming to our area um, that we put together last summer. But, um, but yeah, so it's going really good. The, the Our House folks, I just met with them the other day. Uh, our local civic center got behind it this year, and um, they're already asking, hey, we want to get the date on the calendar for next year. This is a great event. We sold over 500 tickets. Wow. And, uh, and mine and Ken's name were not even on the sign. It just said, Our House Comedy Show or Comedy Night, January 25th, and 500, over 500 people bought tickets. Uh, I'm really excited about that. And my, my philosophy on that, Rick, for anybody that's listening, <laughs> that wants to put together a show, when you make it about anything other than yourself, 
when you can give that now i get paid to do these i I, i'm not donating everything i'm reducing i give a discount um uh my rate and i try to do them during times where it's not the busiest time of the year for for me to get comics uh that can squeeze it into their schedule or whatever um but when you get a ministry that can benefit i always look at the ministry is what's the draw Okay, I, I don't necessarily need a, you know, a, a brand name like a uh, somebody that's producing their own concerts, you know, like Ashonda or Anita or Tim Hawkins or John Chris or whoever. Um, what I need is for your ministry to get people excited about spending their entertainment dollar for that week to come enjoy a show. Now, part of that. I've found the best time to do that is either on a weeknight, a Sunday night, or a Friday night. Uh, people will not give up their Saturdays for an unknown. Right. Um, they just won't. I, I mean, and, and I've had people, you know, say, well, that's how, you know, we could go up on the ticket because that's how much, you know, you would pay for a movie. Well, yeah, but the movie something you want to see. <laughs> You don't know if you want to see these people or not. They're my friends and I know they're incredibly funny, um, but you don't know that. And uh, so anyway, and Ken, you know, Ken is awesome. And the minute I showed them his video when we had the first meeting, uh, when I was going to try to get him to come, uh, one of the ladies just jumped and was like, oh my goodness, I know who that is. He is awesome. And uh and so, but, you know, the advertiser, I mean, we were on the flyer. I, he, he was the main one on the flyer. I just opened and featured for him. I did 30 minutes up front because I had closed the show last year. Gotcha. And, uh, but that is the kind of thing that I always say you can put together. If you get good quality comedians and because the ministry, if they're going to have a fundraiser, unless they're doing some MLM, you know, candle fundraiser or candy fundraiser or something like you've got to buy the product up front. If you're going to sell t-shirts, you got to go buy t-shirts. So if you're going to sell comedians, you're going to sell comedy. You got to go buy comedians. Right now. Like I said, I work a budget around the time of year that I know, uh, it's not as busy. <clears throat> so, um, anyway, I hope that helps. I'm very passionate about this as you can tell. Well, that's great. And, that's the kind of thing that gets me out of the bed too, is having some impact with what you do instead of just doing it for yourself. There's enough shows that you do for yourself. It's nice to do some for others. And I always find those to be more rewarding than the ones I was doing just for the paycheck anyway, you know? Yeah. Well, our time is drawing to a close here. I want to make sure people know where they can find you. I'm checking out your website right now. Kdodd.com. Kdodd is K-A-Y-D-O-D-D. And they can check out some clips of you there and what you're all about anything that they should know about that we didn't cover yet or or anything you want to share with them um you know social media is at k dodd comedy on facebook twitter and um instagram although i'm not really on twitter um but i really can't think of anything i mean my my closing thoughts would be to anybody that's just starting out doing this um keep it clean uh, keep it clean always even for the clubs 
the dry bar comedy thing that we're seeing everywhere. And I saw that you're on their schedule. Um, Rick Robert. Yep. Um, that is proof. Those videos are getting millions and millions of views. That is proof that this country and this world likes clean comedy. It's harder to keep it clean. It absolutely is. Um, but comedy, stand-up comedy is hard. And, uh, it's, you know, I always say it's not for the faint of heart. Um, because if it, if it comes easy to you, um, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> I was just saying, saying it, it came but, easy to me because I was, you know, I was a funny person. But the writing, especially to get it to the point of where it is clean, it makes you think, it makes you climb, and, you know, you have to work a little bit harder to get to that. Um, it's a process, and, and it's an art form, and it's all of that. But I would also also want to say, um, yes, we're artists, and, you know, you're not going to tell me what I can do with my art. Well, if you're signing my check, you can pretty much tell me what to do with my art. Um, because, uh, that is their stage and I may be the, the product that's on the stage, but I'll be gone next week. And those people still live there and whether it's a church or a comedy club or whatever, that's either their pulpit or their comedy club stage that people pay to get, well, not to the church, hopefully, but to the comedy clubs, they pay to get in there every week. And so what we do up there, um, it can help or hurt the rest of us. That's true. That's true. A lot of times I don't think comics realize that you are part of a system, even though you're an individual and you're an artist and you're doing your, your own kind of comedy that it has to fit into a system somewhere or you have to create your own system. So if you're using somebody else's platform, you got to be respectful of that. Make sure that platform's there for the person next week. Yes. And it's one thing to study the greats in the arena. Like if you're in the club arena, there's certain levels of comedians that you, you know, aspire to be like. And if you're in the church arena, there's, you know, these over here that you aspire to be like. But you cannot look at somebody that is a ticketed event that has a tour bus that has these national tours and go, I want to do it like that. Because uh, for one thing, they probably didn't do it exactly like that when they were getting started either. And so you can, you can set your sights for that level, but you still got to pay your dues at the level that you're at. My, my philosophy. Hey, no, that's good. I think I'll leave it right there. It's something to, to ponder, something to soak in a little bit. All righty. Hey, Kay, I appreciate you taking the time today, and it's been fun. I didn't realize we had so much in common as far as how long we've been doing it and the, the clubs that we did and all that kind of stuff, so that was, that was pretty fun. Awesome. Well, you know, I highly respect you, Rick Roberts, and I appreciate you asking me to be on the show. Good luck and blessings on Dry Bar. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. March 15th, if anybody's out in the uh, Provo, Utah area, that'll be my taping night, so... I'll keep you posted on how that's going. Yeah, it should be fun. There you go, folks. K. Dodd bringing the wisdom. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that part about the Comedy House Theater, how they would keep an eye on each table that got these free tickets and then decided whether they want to send those tables free tickets again based on their behavior, based on their spending, based on the way they treated the staff and the comedian. Uh, very interesting. Not sure how many clubs did that. I know 
it was always big of, of the clubs back in there to do the fishbowl drawings and collect business cards, but to actually fill out a comment card on your table so we can track who you are by the table number or by the wait staff number, that was pretty clever, very interesting, and uh, forward thinking for way back in those days where computers and algorithms and all those databases were fairly new. Not completely new in the 90s, but fairly new, especially in the entertainment business. So good stuff. And then again, to reiterate her part about making the fundraiser about something besides yourself, uh, very, very good point. Because if you just say this is the Rick Roberts comedy fundraiser, uh, nobody's coming out. But if it's the March of Dimes fundraiser, Changing Lives Forever, and it's a comedy show, people buy tickets to that, and then they find out, hey, Rick Roberts is there. May not be looking for the entertainer before the cause. So think about that. Hey, been traveling around quite a bit. Going to be in uh, Las Vegas, Orlando, and Des Moines coming up pretty quickly. So if you live in one of those three cities and you want to see if there's time to get together, grab a cup of coffee, I may or may not have time, but I'd like to know if you're around. Maybe even do a podcast if we can find the time for that. Uh, all those have are coming up in the next two weeks from this episode, basically. So when you hear this, give me a shout. Schooloflaughs at gmail.com if you think you might want to meet up somewhere near Las Vegas, Orlando, or Des Moines, Iowa. All right. Thanks very much for listening. Happy late Valentine's Day. Now's the time to hit the Dollar Tree and get dollar candy for 50 cents. Book it. All right. Stay safe. Stay funny. And stay away from those little tiny hearts with those little sayings on them. Sayings like, I'm a stalker. You're a creep. Get away from me. All those things. Is that what they said? They probably should. I bet they have a whole new bunch of those going to come out next year when somebody buys that uh, copyright or whatever you have on that, that patent. And just have a bunch of up-to-date sayings like, uh, lose my Instagram. Or I'm blocking you on Facebook. <laughs> anyway, peace out. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.